0: This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark.
1: Hello, my name is Tim Clark and this is episode one of Caught in the Act, a new podcast which will take you inside the courtrooms of Perth and beyond for a weekly discussion and dissection of the biggest legal cases of the moment. Now, in the last seven days, you couldn't have failed to have been affected and confronted by the facts of the case of the state of Western Australia versus Paul Anthony Cannon. As that identifier states, it was a case about Cannon, a 55-year-old man who was jailed for life with a minimum term of 19 years for murder. His victim was his former wife, Lynn. She was yet another case of the most extreme domestic violence. Paul
0: Cannon stabbed Lynn to death in what Justice Derrick today described as a prolonged
1: and vicious attack. And in the hours before her tragic death, it also emerged that reports had been made to WA police about a woman in potential danger. At 7.30, Christine made the first call to police. Other neighbours followed
0: to report screaming. At 8.20, an eyewitness saw Lynn alive, pleading for help. Paramedics arrived eight minutes later when Lynn took her final breath. Police arrived at 8.44. She was covered in defence
1: wounds. It took officers more than an hour to respond to triple O calls. And that was partly because they were already dealing with two other similar calls in the same area on the same night, and that on average, police respond to a report of domestic violence in Perth every four minutes. The Cannon case has brought into sharp focus the seemingly ever-escalating scourge of domestic violence happening behind front doors across our state. And it was also a stark reminder of how the court process which follows such a case can be almost as traumatizing as the crime itself. Joining us today to help us better understand the complexities and delicacies of cases such as this is Bernard Standish, who's been a barrister on both sides of the bar table, prosecuting and defending for more than 25 years. Bernard, thanks very much for joining us today. Hello, Tim. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, mate. So good. Uh, let's introduce you to our listeners first. As I said, you've got a, a career that's, uh, that's, that's long and winding. It's taken you uh, across the country and further afield. So just tell us a little bit about your career first. So I started practicing law in
0: Queensland, my home state, uh, in the early 90s, and um, virtually uh, been exclusively practicing in crime. Since about nineteen ninety four, and uh, as you said, uh, on both sides uh, of the bar table. So, I practice now from Albert Wolf Chambers in
1: the city, and um, but I still take prosecution briefs as well as defence briefs. Mm. So, safe to say, you've probably seen and, and heard. Um, almost all there is to see and, and hear in the law, although I suppose you you, you never say never, and you ne- you never think you've you've done it all or seen it all. Oh, no, I know I don't see
0: myself that way, but I have seen a lot of uh, a lot of bad behaviour, uh, or, or um, you know, a lot of incidences of uh, domestic violence, domestic and family violence. Um, and in your intro, Tim, you spoke about it being a scourge, and there's no doubt that it is a bit of a scourge in our society, mm. and. Um, uh, you know, it's important that uh, a light is shone upon you know these things that happen behind
1: front doors, as you say. Yeah. Mm. And uh, well, as as we mentioned off the top, the, uh, the 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 case of of Paul Cannon is a particularly bad one. So I'm going to go through some of the details now, and and just a warning that some of these details for some listeners might be uh, a, a disturbing. Um, and or triggering so during canon's sentencing hearing in uh, wa supreme court the court was told that the the 55 year old canon and his wife had separated around 2020 and he had failed to come to terms with the end of this marriage so he spent the next portion of his life ruminating and had then begun thinking about killing his ex-wife in the weeks before he did he also sent her some vile and abusive text messages calling her a lying cheating slut yet the court was told miss cannon continued to engage with him uh, lent him money and even gave him her old car then on lynn's 51st birthday he traveled to her house in the morning uninvited where he discovered she was seeing someone else enraged He then sent her a text message threatening to harm her and that he knew she had a new partner, writing, I hope to be celebrating your painful death soon. The following day, he again travelled to Miss Cannon's house and threatened her with a knife. A few hours later, she then travelled to his Lansdale home in the afternoon to sign some car transfer papers. When Miss Cannon arrived, the pair began arguing, with the court told... That argument continued for hours. By 8pm that evening, it had escalated, prompting neighbours to call police. Ten minutes later, Cannon's landlord walked into the house and saw him holding his former wife by the hair and holding two knives before stabbing her in the chest with one of them and yelling, I told you I was going to kill you. Ms. Cannon was stabbed at least seven times in the chest. She also received stab wounds to her wrists, back, chin, thighs and elbows. Some of those defensive wounds. Justice Anthony Derrick said he was satisfied the father of two had intended to kill his ex-wife in the hours before he carried out the horrific act. He also described his actions as prolonged and vicious adding that Ms. Cannon's last moments would have been terrifying and horrific. And he also said while Cannon had shown remorse, he was not satisfied that he accepted full responsibility, instead blaming his mental state and alcohol abuse when talking to a prison psychologist. Justice Derrick jailed Cannon for life with a minimum non-parole period of 19 years. And following the sentencing... Lynn's three sisters said they believed had police responded quicker, their sister would still be here today.
0: Lynn was failed. We were all failed. The knowledge that she could so easily have been saved has greatly increased our pain and suffering.
1: Now, Bernard, any uh, domestic violence uh, incident, even heard in the sort of sterile surroundings of court can um, jolt the senses and anyone listening to those facts couldn't couldn't fail to be affected by them given the family circumstances that envelop all domestic violence cases um with your old prosecutor's hat on uh, uh, sort of how do you approach them when it, when it comes to actually getting to the truth of what happened There's been um, some pretty significant um, uh, reforms
0: uh, in the state of Western Australia in recent times, Tim. The parliament passed the Family Violence Legislation Reform Act in 2020, um, which, uh, as I say, was quite significant. uh, The effect of that Legislation Reform Act was to uh, create new provisions within um, the criminal code uh, new offences were created, including a persistent uh, family violence offence. Um, they also introduced uh, an offence of strangulation, mm-hmm. uh, impeding someone's breath, uh, which is a common form of, I suppose, family violence. Uh, and there were some major changes to the Evidence Act, such that if it's relevant, a family violence is relevant uh, in the context of either a family violence offence or or some other alleged offence, for example, an alleged offence of sexual penetration without consent, as between a a married, albeit estranged couple or or whatever, then evidence of family violence that uh, occurred on other occasions can be led as part of that trial Mm -hmm. to help get a decision-maker, such as a jury, to understand the dynamics of what happened inside that household. So um, I think the Parliament uh, recognized uh, in passing this legislation that people react in all sorts of different ways to family violence, and that family violence is something that doesn't just is not just limited to acts of physical violence, but um, it can include sexual violence, it can include, acts of coercive control, Mm -hmm. so that sort of scenario, that classic scenario, usually, I mean, I'm not trying to gender this, but it's obviously usually a male perpetrating the violence on a female Um, and in circumstances where, as it seems in that case study to which you've just referred, um, uh, the the perpetrator of the violence cannot accept uh, a decision by a former partner to move on with her life um, without that man. So, um, there is, as I say, and it's, it's commonly used now by prosecutors, um, the provisions in the Evidence Act to allow um, uh, them to lead evidence of other acts that aren't the subject of the charge on the indictment, um, but simply to put into context the dynamics of this relationship between people so that a jury would understand, for example, why it might be that a complainant didn't come forward um, to complain about being raped by her former husband uh, because of the prevalence of the domestic violence in the relationship, for mm. example.
1: So, and was that to uh, subvert or um, prevent uh, an accused claiming oh, it was just a one-off? Um, you know, it had never happened before. I, you know, I was under a lot of pressure, and and to. W- w- to get around that common defence or...? No, perhaps
0: it's... I mean, I I should put it into context. I mean, as a general proposition, um, the prosecution is limited to running evidence, leading evidence uh, relevant to the charge that's been considered by the jury and that um, a person's, for example, a person's prior criminal history can't be led as part of the trial Mm. because... If the jury hears about that, then you know um, they'll, they, they may reach a, a conclusion that if he's done it in the past, then he's done it this time. There are exceptions to that, and um, some of those exceptions include things such as propensity evidence, where if someone has a propensity, it's a recognised propensity to act in a particular way in the past, that person may be more likely to have committed the offence that's charged. This is a, a strengthening, I suppose, of that sort of concept that evidence of what might be called disreputable conduct or, or, you know, the conduct that's not the subject of the count on the indictment might be relevant in determining whether what is being decided on the indictment has been committed by that um, accused person. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a helpful tool yep. to the prosecutors as long as it's not misused, I yeah. suppose.
1: Yeah. And uh, going back to to the current case, so uh, in Justice Derrick's sentencing remarks, he actually flashed back four months uh, before the actual incident itself um, to um, relate or relay a text message that Mr. Cannon had sent his ex-wife or or estranged Mm -hmm. wife, and I'll quote some of it, I hope and pray that you are dead before we get to court because really Mm -hmm. you have been and always will be a cheating, lying slut. I just wish I was there to watch you die in agony as a bonus. So that not strictly part of the, um, the, the acts that were committed on the day that would have been, or the date that would have been cited on the indictment, but, Um, able to be taken into context as to what was happening in that relationship and what had led up to that fatal moment. And indeed, um,
0: I'm I'm not uh, familiar with every detail of that particular case and I'm not sure whether it went to trial or whether he pleaded guilty to that charge. But um, on a plea of guilty, that sort of material would be relevant um, because the judge can inform herself or himself um, of of all sorts of matters that would not necessarily be strictly admissible in a trial. Mm. But even if he took it just to trial, that would be relevant, I would have thought, on a charge of murder because it would go as much to his intention Mm -hmm. as anything else. So the prosecution in a murder trial obviously has to prove that uh, the accused person committed the acts that caused the death of another person unlawfully and that such acts were accompanied by a murderous intent, that is, an intent to to kill that person or an intent to cause uh, an injury of such a nature as to endanger or be likely to endanger that person's life. So, evidence of that text message would go directly to that particular issue because it it would be seen to, to, or it would be argued by the prosecutor to the jury that he was telling the truth about what his future intention was—that mm-hmm. is, to cause her death. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be relevant.
1: And I should have pointed out earlier, actually, uh, that uh, Mr. Cannon did actually plead guilty um, to the charge. He didn't take this to trial, and it was, it was on the day that he did plead guilty that his, uh, his. Wife's sisters, um, three of them, first made vocal um, their uh, grief, their grief at the loss of their sister, obviously, but the disappointment at the uh, at the process that had gone on, um, getting uh, or, or the interaction with family members um, of uh, victims in, in cases such as this must be uh, must be a particularly tricky line to tread, Bernard, in, in terms of how you go about traversing what is obviously a very traumatic experience for them, but you also have to boil it down to the the facts that, that will either get a person um, convicted or uh, assist in helping a judge sentence them um, at the end of the day. How, how do you approach that? It's difficult. Um, the
0: immediate family members of a deceased person who's been killed unlawfully by another person are obviously very important. Um, everyone's death, if, if they're killed by another person, is has an impact on everyone in society. You know, every murder is, is, is bad for our society, but obviously it has a greater impact on the people that, that love that person, the people in that family. So amongst... Um, uh, the, the prosecutors, they're, they're known as key secondary victims mm-hmm. and, and they are to be consulted the whole way through the process um, so that um, they have some understanding of what what might follow. And you, as a respected journalist uh, who's been covering the courts for a long time, Tim, you would have seen um, family members turning up to the Stirling Gardens Magistrates Court where people charged with murder. Processed until they are committed to stand trial, and and they will often appear even at very brief mentions just to have some sense of um, support for their for their deceased relative. Mm. Um, it's important, I think, for from a prosecutorial point of view to um, just be a bit cautious in the way that I mean, it, 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 you just need to have empathy with people. But you also have to be a bit realistic mm. in terms of what you can and cannot. Um, I mean, promise a, a person, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether whether you're defending someone on any sort of serious charge or whether you are prosecuting someone, you can't guarantee the result either way. And and it's important that um, you know the family members must must be aware that. The decision as to someone's guilt, particularly on a charge of murder, is in the hands of the jury. So, it's um, you, you can't you can't make promises that you, you 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 can't necessarily deliver on, and it's it's a fine line because they 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 only see it in one particular way, and and also they're not familiar with rules of evidence, and you know. What things can be led? What things can't be led? Because it's again, um, it doesn't fall within the rules of evidence. So it's just important to treat people with respect and empathy, and try and um, and, and do the best you can to keep
1: them updated with the whole um, process. Mm. And victim impact statements are also yeah. an important part of the process. Um, they, are they are legal documents that are placed before. Um, a judge, usually, or, or and or a magistrate that that um, allow, as you say, a secondary victim or a victim, you know, a primary mm-hmm. victim in, in the case of a serious assault or a sex assault or something like that, to tell the court the impact of a crime on them and their ongoing life and, and how it's really affected them. Even there are rules to, to what can be put before a judge. And in, yeah. in this case, in the Cannon case, not only were they um, put placed before the judge, but the judge actually in one case allowed the victim to read that um, victim impact statement out themselves in person in court, which is a um, that's a discretionary measure that a judge has, and I've uh, I'm sure mm. you have, Bernard. I've seen both sides where a judge has refused and said, "No, it's not going to help me." Um, mm. To to, to there, there come was to, come a, to a I think stentity. there was a time. Sorry, uh, t-
0: sorry, Tim. I didn't mean to speak over you. There, there, there was a time when um, there was a concern that the person who, who had drawn the victim impact statement may go off-piste yep. when they're in the witness box. And so that 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 caused a bit of concern because their emotions can sometimes take the better of them. And when they're in that public forum, they they, they may go off-script, you know. And and so um, there's nothing, certainly nothing within the Sentencing Act that prohibits that statement being read aloud. So it is, as you say, at the discretion of the judge as to whether that will be permitted. It, it can have a powerful impact if uh, the offender, because he is an offender by that stage, um, is in the dock and listening to a key secondary victim speak about the loss of their loved one or listening to their primary victim who has been, you know, assaulted by this man in the past um, and and to hear firsthand What impact that had on 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 those people? Mm. Uh, It can be it can
1: be powerful. Uh, It's some of the most powerful um, moments I've ever had in court. I think is actually listening to um, a victim of of whatever crime it might be tell their experience in their own words, um, while they're in some cases just meters away from the, the person that's that's inflicted that damage on them whatever it might be and in this case um as, as i said um one of uh, lynn cannon's sisters um was permitted to um to say Correct. um yeah. her experience in her words and, and some of those words were particularly powerful um, she finished her sentence by uh, by saying this you are nothing you will be forgotten wiped from our lives like we would wipe the dirt from our shoes and hearing that um and hearing some of the other uh, things that he'd uh, not only been accused of but admitted he'd done um paul cannon was actually in tears himself in the dark obviously um uh, <laughs> contemplating what uh, his, his immediate future yeah. might be um yeah. Having people in the the witness box, um, Bernard, that that have been through these um, uh, traumatic experiences. So some of them, obviously, when they go to trial, are still alleged. On the defence side of things you're tasked with asking them questions about uh, about their accounts and um, at times having to pick holes in them. And again, that must be a really fine line to tread between um, uh, going as hard as you need to to represent your client but not going too far that you might um, uh, earn the ire of a judge or a jury um, or, a, <laughs> or, or, or a, an angry family member, I suppose. Yeah, oh, well... Um,
0: as lawyers, Tim, we, we we're not judges, so um, and we have ethical constraints, obviously, in the way that we practice our law. So it's very important for the listeners to appreciate that um, in our democracy, um, our criminal justice system has to operate to allow people to be represented um, when they're charged with serious crimes. And but there's it's not it's not just some. Uh, opportunity for a lawyer to go rogue and just uh, attack people, um, that's not going to get you anywhere. And it's not not appropriate. It's not within the ethical constraints. We're obviously bound by the instructions we receive. And if a client says, I'm not guilty of this offence, and we take further instructions about the circumstances that he claims to have existed, and um, it's important that um, those claims are put to the complainant, to allow her the opportunity to comment on it, Mm. or or agree or disagree with those propositions. But it's also appropriate for her to be properly tested um, because allegations are merely that, they're allegations until, unless and until they are proven to the satisfaction of the jury beyond reasonable doubt. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know, Tim, that to adopt an attitude or to adopt a tone or to use language that is disparaging or um, is uh, disrespectful uh, or unnecessarily um, argumentative doesn't do your client any favours for a start, but also it just reflects very badly on you as an individual lawyer um, and is completely ineffective. Mm. So, uh, it's important that we be permitted when we're defending people to test people who make claims against their client, but to do it in a respectful way. So it is, I suppose, a bit bit of a fine line. But um, anyone who's been practicing for any length of time will, will probably know, you know, what line not to cross. Mm. Uh,
1: um, and you've you've seen that change over the years. I take it. I mean, oh, uh, completely, completely. So, um. As
0: I mentioned at the beginning, I started my career in Queensland and when I started practising in crime, um, we still had uh, contested committal, what was called committal hearings. So something involving a serious charge that ultimately has to be decided by a judge and jury in our district court or the Supreme Court would start as a charge in the magistrate's court And in those days, in the magistrate's court, um, an accused person was entitled to test the evidence contained in the statements of witnesses at what was was known as a committal hearing. Mm -hmm. Now, that's in front of a magistrate, not a judge. There was no jury. Um, The magistrate in those days had an obligation to commit the person for trial if the magistrate found that there was a prima facie case, to answer. Now, the whole concept of committal hearings, I'm not sure exactly when they were abolished in Western Australia, but it was well before I started practising here. But they fell into sort of disrepute to a certain extent in the Eastern States because they could be abused let me give you an example. Mm. If someone was on a serious charge that didn't involve a murder, so the victim was still alive, but it was serious charge, at the committal hearing, the lawyer representing that person um, could be abrasive, could be really um, quite
1: robust <laughs> in questioning of that witness. That's a very legal term for being rude, <laughs> obnoxious. Oh,
0: yeah. Like, you know... Arrogant. It, 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 Yeah, totally, like, you know...
1: Intimidating.
0: Intimidating. So, and and the purpose for that might well have been, I'm not saying this was the case in everyone's case, but for many lawyers, it may have been in order to have an effect upon that witness when she gave evidence a second time Mm. in front of a judge and jury. So, uh, uh, and I've known of, of, of cases where a witness who was uh, cross-examined in that robust way in the committal hearing in front of the magistrate only, uh, you know, virtually walked out of the courtroom in tears um, and deflated. And then when she returned to, to testify in front of the jury, was in, was incredibly um, anxious and worried about tr- copying the same sort of treatment mm-hmm. again. Only to find that the same lawyer who, who attacked her in the earlier stage was all, all of a sudden <laughs> nice as pie, <laughs> because the, the, he, he may have achieved the purpose for which he was he, he, he did that yeah. at the committal hearing. In other words, to, to shatter her confidence, mm. and she was then second guessing. Well, why, you know, why why is it so different here? Because it's not the sort of behaviour that he wanted that that lawyer wanted to demonstrate in front of the jury. Mm. So. Anyway, it just became, I don't think the justice system could um, accommodate committal hearings for every matter the way that the lists are now. It already takes a long time before someone comes to trial and if there's a separate hearing in the lower court, it would only blow it out further, leading to more costs to the community. And at the end of the day, um, it's not as though when we're defending someone, we, we don't know what the case against our client is when we go to trial in front of a jury because we, we're, the prosecution has a duty to disclose all of its evidence. Yeah. So we have all that, you know. Yeah. So that's an example of how things have changed, uh, Tim, you know. so And, and other changes, uh, uh, you know, I think that in contemporary society, I think the general public is just more fully aware that although this, these, the scourge of domestic violence and family violence is behind, you know, closed doors in the community, I think there's just a, a more awareness of the fact that um, it's prevalent. You know, it's it's prevalent within our community, and it's and it touches upon every strata of society. You know, from from you know, people. People that are captains of industry are not exempt from committing acts of domestic violence, or you know, politicians, or you know, um, men are capable of it, no matter what status they are, and it's just rampant. And I think I think jurors and and the community generally is just much more aware of it, and, and through things such as you know your reportage in, of what goes on in the courts.
1: Yeah, and I, as you say, they're always hard cases to cover um, mm. because. Well, I mean, like any sort of ma- major crime or incident, you're always you always feel like a little bit of a voyeur. Into mm. the worst, um, you know, parts of people's lives, and and there are very, particularly in DV cases, very intimate details about what was said, what was done, what led up to it. That he said, she said, allegations. There's there's often children involved. It, they can be it, mm. extremely um, challenging to even witness, let alone um, I, I'm, I'm sure, on. well, mm. and report on. But I'm, I'm 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 sure then defend and or prosecute because. Uh, I mean, it's that's the just the life of a lawyer. I suppose you get attached to one side or the other, not uh, attached in a professional sense. I mean, not in a personal sense. But yeah, that, but then that, then you become, I suppose, particularly in in very personal ones, you be, you become part of the conflict yourself, even though you're trying to uh, uh, help a court and uh, not not necessarily help a, help one side or the other. Yeah, well, yeah, yes and no.
0: I mean, I think I think we have to. We have to remain, um, you know, independent of the whole thing because, you know, uh, we shouldn't be personally involved in it, particularly if you're prosecuting, you know, mm. you should be disinterested, and I don't say that in a disparaging way, but you should be disinterested in the outcome. It should be just about ensuring that the process is correct mm. and letting letting the, the decision makers decide, letting the jury decide, and, you know, you'd, you're not... For example, the lawyer for the complainant—you know—they're not your client. It's—it's—it's mm. um, it's, it's very, very important to remain. It's not so much remaining aloof, but it's just remaining professionally. Um, well, the word I'd use is disinterested yeah. in, in the sense, in the sense that um, you just do the right thing, make sure that you run a fair trial, uh, fair for all concerned. Fair, fair for the the victim and the, and her family as well as fair for
1: the uh, the accused man. Hmm. Um, how do you think the courts and the justice system could um, make the process easier for in, in these type of cases, Berner? Or is that is that an impossible dream? Uh, no, I think I think uh, <sighs> I think
0: it's easier than it was when I started out. Simply because I think that. The judiciary um, is 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 better trained than it once was. I mean, I'm sure that they're getting um, ongoing uh, training in in matters involving uh, family and domestic violence. Uh, as I say, the techniques used by lawyers um, are improving because it's pointless to be that guy that used to, you know. Uh, practice back in the 1970s or the 60s or, or whatever where um, any victim was fair game mm-hmm. uh, so I think it is improving um, the victim support office offers support to to, um, to witnesses and uh, and complainants um, I think as a general proposition everything is improving but um, as with everything in the law it takes it does take time you know it changes
1: it's um, Glacial at times, but uh... it, it can, yeah, it's,
0: a, it's more evolution than revolution, <laughs> you know. I
1: mean. yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, Bernard, thanks so much for um, giving us some light and shade into uh, into a picture that is sometimes seems just to be uh, just to be back black and white lines in these cases. So, thanks very much for being the, uh, the premier guest on uh, Court in the Act. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tim, for asking me, and um, I hope. It's been of some benefit to everyone. Thank you. And of course, if you or someone you know is affected by domestic violence, then confidential information, counselling and support services are available via 1-800-RESPECT, which is available free 24 hours a day, seven days a week to support anyone impacted by domestic, family or sexual violence. That's 1-800-RESPECT, eight hundred seven three seven seven three two. 737 732 so, thank you for joining us for the first episode of Court in the Act. You can, of course, find us at thewest.com.au or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions for us, you can email them in to act at wanews.com.au. And, of course, if you want to know what's happening in court, don't get caught short. See you next time.